when you hear the word Dharma, if it's got a capital D, it refers to the teachings of the Buddha. If it's got a lowercase d in Buddhism, it refers to all of the phenomena we're surrounded by in life before our minds get a hold of it and begin to embellish, amplify, filter, cut up, change, highlight, uh, in, in essence, play around with perceptions in a way to say to awareness and attention, hey, this stuff that's going on right now is pretty important. I should pay attention. Or, this stuff is not very important. I shouldn't pay attention. You see, the mind is not particularly wired to represent the world as it is. All brains are set up to help a, a species survive. Period. End of sentence. All species, uh, in every way imaginable, distort reality, uh, filter reality. Just to give two obvious examples, which won't really play in tonight, but uh, you may or may not be aware that there is really no such thing as color or sound in the world. Color is what's created by your eyes when light bounces off a surface and then hits the rods and cones in your iris but most species don't see colors, and species that do see colors see entirely different colors than we do. There's no right, or um, color is something that brains add to the world. Likewise, when a tree falls in the forest, that old <laughs> Buddhist gem, it doesn't actually create a sound. What does it do? It creates vibrations. Those vibrations reach your ears, and your ears transform it or transcribe it into a sound. That's what music is, just vibrations, moving air. Pretty dry stuff, right? So I'll move on from this to where it's really important, which are putting aside the tricky issue of qualia and just getting to the gist of this talk. Um, we have all of these sensations coming in and then the mind is first trying to make sense of them through the occipital, the temporal lobes, the parietal lobes, which are essentially uh, going through the information and adding, creating the virtual reality that we each live in. So first the mind is then creating a sense of what's out there. But then on top of it, we have all these processes that go about ex examining the world as we've transcribed it in our brains. And these processes are telling us whether or not we should react to what's going on in this situation. So these processes are essentially survival processes. The Buddha called these processes khandas or components. He said there's five that we're aware of at any given moment. Five processes that are constantly carving up, changing, adding, commenting, interpreting, embellishing, uh, adorning, and I wish I could come up with more words because it makes me sound like I have an education. But, uh, so that's what the survival mechanisms are doing. The very first is your uh, brainstem, when it sees a thread, it changes your breath. So your breath and some of your body postures change. The second thing that happens is your midbrain adds fight, flight, or freeze messages or craving 
that's midbrain, and that's uh, done by largely pre-conscious settings. And then you have unconscious beliefs that are set by an entire lifetime of experience. People with beards are scary. No, they're not. I'm just making that up. Uh, people with, uh, you know, who smile are nice. People who frown are not. Whatever your life experience, you know, experiences have taught you, you come into each moment with some underlying beliefs, which the Buddha called sana, perceptions or expectations. And then we have the interpretive faculties of the brain, all the thinking and stories and emotions we add, the fear, anxiety, elation, joy, the stories about what does this mean about me. Uh, when we go through, for example, a difficult conversation, a boss says to us in a job, I'd like you to come into my office. So the first thing that might happen is the brainstem hears that information and it activates, it starts making our breath become tight. And then we start having the fight, flight, or freeze, the impulse to run <laughs> or to become very defended and tight. And then we have the unconscious expectations of, uh-oh, this can't be good. Whenever my parents would call me in for a meeting, it was bad news. Whenever teachers would call me in for a meeting, it was bad news. So this must be bad news. We bring in all those unconscious expectations. And then there's the interpretations. Oh no, what could this possibly mean? Adding fear and then projections of being fired and oh no, I'll be homeless on the streets. And then finally there's the fixated awareness. The mind that fixates on this event, this image of the boss, and loses track of everything else in the world. So that's the, the mechanisms of survival, and those aggregates are components that essentially comment on all of our experience and add a sense of, I've got to get involved, or this, I've got to be prepared, or I can't just relax. I have to do something about this information. These reactions, the Buddha said, not only constantly add suffering and stress to life, but they also are where we construct, and this is kind of interesting, our sense of identity. We don't <coughs> construct our sense of who I am, what my personality is, uh, what is my self, who am I. We don't construct that during the times where we're relaxed, we're just doing our tasks, we're deeply ingrained in our art, our creative endeavors, our writing, our labor. It's only when we're really reactive, defended, tight, worried, that we become aware of our internal processes. And during those times, we also tend to construct our sense of who I am. So who I am is not constructed during the times we feel safe. Who I am is not constructed during the times I feel engaged with tasks. Who I am is generally constructed by the way I react to threats or opportunities, the way I react to situations I believe I have to act in. We tend to define ourselves, as the Buddha says, whatever we obsessively return to again and again creates our sense of a lasting self. And what do we return to again and again but our reactions? 
the way we react to stimuli. Furthermore, the human brain is set up to remember negative and positive events and forget non-neutral uh, events, neutral events that don't in any way affect our survival. The brain is set up to forget. We have in the midbrain the amygdala, which is the core of the reactive limbic system. And the amygdala not only activates fight, flight, freeze, and, and with the nucleus accumbens activates all of our craving, it's also the part of the brain that determines what you remember. Fascinating study. If you give people um, 10 images, or let's say 12 images, I don't remember how many they used in the study, but you give people 12 images, four are with positive smiling faces, four are with negative frowning faces, and four with neutral expressions. And then a week later, you show the same people an array of, fo of faces all together, and you ask them to pick out the ones they saw previously. They will almost, to a one, be able to pick out all four of the negative faces. They'll be able to pick out two or three at most of the positive smiling faces, and most people fail entirely in these tests of picking out any neutral face that they saw previously. Because the brain says, oh, this person has a neutral expression, they're not really worth remembering. Likewise, in our own experience, when we are in a neutral, confident, doing our job, not adding a lot of drama, not feeling we have to uh, keep track of any fires, put out anything, when we're not alarmed, when we're not reactive, we don't tend to remember. And then, because we don't tend to remember, we don't define ourselves by those times. We define ourselves very often by the way we react under stress. I once had somebody who used to, I worked with years, maybe well over ten years ago, when I first started doing one-on-one -on -one work, uh, I worked with this guy who used to call me up, and he used to say, I'm such an angry person, I'm so angry. And then we'd talk a little bit, and then he'd calm down, and we'd be chatting and, you know, talking about something, and then he would be calm and relaxed, and then I'd say, so you don't sound angry now. And he'd be startled each time. He'd say, what do you mean? He wasn't even aware that he wasn't angry. It was causing so little uh, notice that he didn't even aware he wasn't even aware that he existed while he wasn't angry. It was only when he was angry or depressed that he was aware of his existence because he was aware of the sensations in his body. But when he was calm and talking and just chatting, he wasn't even aware that he existed. So there was no way he could define himself by something he wouldn't remember or even notice. If we want to, the Buddha said, develop any form of wisdom or insight, <clears throat> the Buddha taught that we have to release the mind from the reactive components or khandhas that essentially constantly tell us two things. One, they tell us, I have to get rid of this. How can I end this situation? How can I get out of here? Or how can I get more of this? And immediately, 
when we're in that state of mind, we don't see how things arise and pass. We don't see the conditions under which these things in life occur. We don't really see how important they are. We don't really even see that if we don't act, they might all evaporate on their own. We don't actually have any idea of which things arise because of other things happening. When we're caught up in the reactive mind, I've got to stop this from happening or make sure more of this is available to me, we're immediately caught up in a drama that cuts off us from wisdom, from a kind of detached, almost quasi-objective, even uh, detached, uh, caring mind that can see from a different perspective other than the perspective of, I've got to act now. When we learn from the times we either feel threatened or we feel in the presence of really important opportunities that we need to collect and accumulate, when we're caught up in the what the Buddha says, the winds of chasing fame and fortune and approval and sensual pleasures, but when we're running from financial insecurity, from uh, physical discomforts, when we're running from, uh, you know, feeling uh, obscure, not noticed, when we're running away and towards, we don't pick up any greater sense of uh, perspective. We don't see which things are inevitable and which things are avoidable. We don't see how we could react in a way that would be most efficient. We just take the first most reactively ingrained, uh, installed, habitual response. Some people, when they are under stress, they just avoid. They shut down. They run away. Some people, when they're under stress, they attack, they're aggressive, they get, they shriek and seek attention. When we are activated, we fall back into our repetitive patterns, and then we believe that's who I am. So we essentially lock ourselves in, and we don't learn anything from life. So the Buddha said that the two prerequisites for developing any higher wisdom any new insights are two. One is equanimity. Equanimity is the state of not feeling one has to react immediately to stimuli. Equanimity or balance is cultivated by what we did at the very beginning. It's holding something in mind that we bring our attention to so that when other stuff starts happening, phones ring, emails come in, text messages come in, when we start being bombarded with the stimuli of life, we know how to, at first, stay calm, not immediately react. We can stay with whatever task we're doing, and then when that task is done, we can bring a non-reactive mind to the next stimuli. On the other hand, when we break off what we're doing, when we cut something off, immediately just that cutting off and going over to something else creates what's called cognitive overload because when we cut something off that's unfinished, uh, 
I read this fascinating uh, clinical study. The thing that we were working on remains in, a, in the mind, in the right hemisphere. And then there's the new thing that we've turned attention to. So we keep on adding more and more and more information to the brain. And we become overloaded. So to have any kind of wisdom, we need to be able to cultivate a mind that doesn't immediately have to react, that can finish what it's doing, that doesn't need to uh, always be yanked about, that can finish the staying with the breath for a while, finish fin the email, finish the one thing at the time, and then move to something else. The next quality is what the Buddha called nikama, or renunciation. And that simply means many of us, pretty much all of us, have a tendency to have something in life or a couple of things in life that we're addicted to as a go-to source for pleasure and security. Uh, for me, earlier in my life it was alcohol, and now it's roaming YouTube to listen to completely needless, fun uh, bands or... Uh, whatever else I do. Sometimes I... I uh, what do I do? Sometimes I read reviews of Apple products I definitely don't need and won't allow myself to buy. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong when those things come up naturally. When somebody sends me a email or I want to... Uh, purchase something that I actually need, that the need has come up organically in my life. But when there's a drive to get rid of an underlying feeling or a compulsion to act, uh, that also undermines wisdom and clear seeing because that compulsion cuts off the ability to stay present for a while, to linger and take in uh, a fullness of any given experience. We only really learn from life and only really develop any sense of coherent insight if we can maintain awareness on a situation for a while. And addictions, much like reactive um, tendencies, tend to interfere with that. So the Buddha, throughout the suttas, Nikama and Upekka, equanimity and renunciation of, of addictions or compulsions for a while while we're trying to develop some insight, kind of a must-do. Now, once we do that, there are two practices that allow us, or there's more than two, but I'm going to talk about two practices tonight that really allow for the development of wisdom. The first practice is bear attention mixed with choiceless awareness. Bare attention is uh, an, a mind that doesn't add anything, doesn't add the, all those, what we talked about, those components, those reactive tendencies, that doesn't add, com compulsively add stories about, or judgments or criticisms about experience, that doesn't get caught up in our... Um, our underlying emotional expectations that stays and investigates and that is willing to stay as long as it takes until the criticism, the judgments, the sense that this is wrong and something needs to be done and where we can simply be with 
an experience without adding to it. Bear attention, or Sati Sampujana, the Buddha describes as, the wise do not look for anything outside of what's actually seen. They don't com- contemplate what the seen, what they're seeing means. They don't think about themselves while they're thinking. They simply see. That's a pretty tall order. It's simply being so completely uh, open to an experience without adding all of the obfuscations that we normally do. Another sutta, the Buddha said, when there's nothing added to what's seen, heard, sensed, or cognized, there's no self here nor anywhere else. And that's what leads to liberation. So the practice is with bare, clear attention is simply to drink in the sensations that are present as much as you can with as detailed a mind without adding any reference to anything else. So on retreats, what we do is when we eat, we practice mindful eating. We eat slower. That's what helps with developing bare attention. We'll really savor. We won't uh, chew quickly. we put down the fork in between each bite take the entire length to feel the flavors, swallow, then you'll be surprised. Food that I used to think I didn't really like suddenly become amazing. On the other hand, some of the food's still... But they're all different when I eat slowly and really don't add the story, oh, you know, this is uh, garbanzo beans. I don't really like garbanzo beans. They simply make me have gas. This is not good. I'm not going to eat. But you eat it, and you really take in the, the flavor, and it transforms the experience, and then suddenly there's a different set of views or understanding, hopefully more than just about garbanzo beans, but you get the idea. So essentially... It's a very detailed, present time, non-judgmental, open, non-evaluating, doesn't compare with anything else. We do everything like we're an anthropologist from Mars, doing it for the first time. People, I tell this about, they immediately think, oh, I know where I'll do this. I'll do this on dates, because I hate dates the most. So I'll be like an anthropologist from Mars the next time I go on an internet date. I think, oh, that sounds fine. Anywhere it helps. The choiceless awareness is very often done in conjunction with bare attention. Choiceless awareness is not steering attention, allowing attention to be drawn wherever something seeks our awareness, but never get sucked into whatever it is. Know if we're... Mem- we're reliving something that happened in the past, know that a mem- of fear, a worry, a concern, know that a sensation in the body is calling our attention. Simply feel what's happening in the present, know that's going on, and then when it's time for the mind to move somewhere else, just know where the <coughs> mind is moving. It's a very simple meditation practice, but in conjunction with bare attention, where we simply sink in all of the sensations that are present without adding any judgment 
or any story or any criticism, it creates a mind that can do mindfulness pretty much all the time, and it can really transform the way we experience life. One example, for a long time I had this job that I really detested, and when I was at this job, I'd immediately go in and hate on the job, and just immediately tell all these stories about why I shouldn't be working at this job. What I didn't realize is that while I was essentially living in the, all the additions, all those components of the story, the added emotion, the expectation that every day was going to suck, um, while I was living in the reactiveness to it, while I was engaged in a war with the experience, I continued to work at the job. Because all of that stuff I was adding was actually getting in the way for me, for me actually seeing the job for what it was. Now, most Buddhist teachers, when they tell the story, then they say something along the lines of, when I really turned with an accepting mind and really took in everything that was present, I, didn't, I saw that it wasn't that bad. No. <laughs> I saw how truly terrible it was, and the next day I quit. <laughs> the living in the story of how much I hated it was actually protecting me or dampening the fact that I was spending my life doing something that was so meaningless, and it was only when I stopped adding the war with the experience and fully opened up into what I was feeling and experiencing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis that I saw how unpleasant it was. Now, most Buddhist teachers won't tell you this, but I personally love it when people quit their jobs because of spiritual practice. I think that's great. I think that's very dharma punks. Anywhere else they'll go, they'll preach mindfulness as a way to keep your job. I think it should be a way to quit your job. <laughs> Nothing makes me happier in my one-on-one -on -one work with people when they come in and they say, I quit my job! And I'm like, great! <laughs> You're healed. <laughs> you know, another example of People believe that they really deeply see stuff that they won't take action. In my experience, when I see something terrible in the world, and then I launch into the story of how terrible it is. Look at this person who's homeless, who's on the street, who has, uh, who's a vet, who's got no uh, access to health care, whose you know, um, benefits have run out, whatever and I just live in that story, that story gives me the illusion that I've done something, and then I don't do shit. I just walk away feeling all outraged and, you know, holier than thou, and then I don't do anything. But when I stop there and I drink it in, and I fully take in the experience of uh, what it's like at that moment, what do I feel like? when I'm in the presence of somebody who's suffering, those are the times of my life when I actually take action, when I actually volunteer or give money to an organization. The story, the outrage, the resistance, the reaction doesn't create change. It creates 
the same habitual ingrained response where we feel we're doing something but we're not doing very often anything. So the second practice is open spacious awareness is what we did earlier in the meditation. We added one more thing after another after another until the mind became filled with all the sensations in the present moment and what we learned is that we could be with all these different experiences thoughts, feelings, breath, sounds and we didn't need to do anything we just kept the mind open and spacious and didn't let the mind contract and that is also what's called a tamayata that's one of the great Buddhist techniques of developing wisdom now as I'm running out of time I'm just going to give you an overview of some of the profound wisdom that's available that when you practice any of these sort of giving it all away in Buddhism there's no advanced course we kind of blew it that way right that's the way all these institutions rip you off of money you know you have to take these 12 courses and then you get to the really refined wisdom you ever hear of those groups yeah yeah yeah. here we give it all away for free the very first you might be your first class I'm going to give it all away I'm going to tell you there's nothing there's nothing hidden nothing held back it's all available so here's what the profound wisdom is you with insights wisdom wisdom that. All right. The first three, which every every teacher talks about, so I'm not going to spend too much time on them, are what's called the three marks of existence. The more you don't react, push away, cling to, crave, the more you just stay present with experience and you take it in and you really drink it in and you, 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 you don't add commentary, you see that everything is in a state of flux. All of our reactions keep us from seeing that. Everything's constantly changing. Everything we experience, everything that's built is falling apart. Anything that's born is busy dying. It's all in a state of flux. And because of that, most of the time the things that we, the agendas, the reactive beliefs, the cravings, the things that we cling to for happiness, generally over time, don't satisfy. That's the second great truth, what the Buddha called dukkha, which is that we tend to not see how we habituate to things, how things that seem shiny and new and that they'll save or rescue us from ever feeling um, vulnerable. We get them, we purchase them, and then a day later we're back in the same mindset. Nothing truly satisfies that's not fully always available to us. Anything we, th- we feel we need to get that's not always available is going to, to satisfy because if you have to get it, if it's not already unconditionally available, it'll let you down. Now I can tell you this, but you actually have to see it for yourself in your practice for these wisdom and this wisdom to really take hold. The third and this is one of the more difficult ones to grasp, which is given that all of our feelings, thoughts, internal experiences are changing in a state of flux, just like everything in the world is in a state of flux, because the only constant really is change and fluidity, 
There is no static identity that any of us have. We spend a lot of times in our life trying to define ourselves, tell ourselves who we are. We listen to a lot of people who pathologize us and uh, tell us that we're this or that. And while certainly we have reactive tendencies, we are all undergoing a constant state of continual change. If you could magically, your awareness be lifted out of your brains and could be transported 10 years ago into your brains the way it was then, I guarantee you, you wouldn't recognize any of your thoughts, your feelings, the things that were important to you then would probably not be that important to you now. The things you were worried about then would be but a distant memory now. I know you want to believe that, no, there is some common thread, but really, if you've ever had the uh, misfortune as I have to have every talk I've given in the last 12 years online when I now go back even three or four years I'm like oh my god who was that person and what was he on about I could have put that so much better now I'm so much wiser now I have stuff I wrote back in college, and I, I look at it, and it is a completely different person, utterly different, and I'm not unique. This is the nature of the mind. Over time, over circumstances, settings, we gradually shift and change. And so this tendency to try to self-define, all it does is limit, constrain, limit our expectations of growth, limit our sense of possibilities, causes suffering. But now this is generally where most Buddhist teachers stop. They stop right there and you're probably saying, well, that would be great if you stop right there because this talk is going on. But I'm just going to tell you that there's a few more transcendent wisdom that's actually available and these are the ones that aren't advertised. The Buddha also said because all of, even though everything is fluid and changing, what that means is that every moment in and of itself is profoundly unique and treasurable because it will never be repeated again. The word for that is tathada, and it's the teaching that every moment in time is worth really opening up to and treasuring because we together right now here will never be again in the same place in the same way with the same state of being, the same awareness, the same... You won't be ever in this room with the same people. You won't be in the same uh, frame of mood, of feelings. You are right now in a state that is never going to be repeated, and you are in a situation that is never going to be repeated. And when we look at that, that means every single moment has a transcendent power uh, a profound uniqueness that is worth uh, taking in because we'll never get any of these experiences again. Transcendent naturalness, the Buddha says when we let go of reacting and clinging and trying to always be young and trying to always be healthy and trying to always chase after things that seem to provide us with lasting security, when we stop that reactiveness and we turn towards what's actually happening in life, we see what he calls 
the naturalness of existence, dhammata, naturalness, is the profound flow of from birth to aging to death, the cycles of the earth, the the inevitability that we're all living within, which has its own poetry and its own great uh, value to it. Most of us view the processes of being alive as scary or not worth paying attention to because we associate it with death or aging. But actually, the movement and shifts of the body, the movement and shifts of the world around us, have their own um, meaning, and if we open to them, we can find in all phases of life and all phases of existence something that's worth treasuring and cherishing. Finally, uh, there's so many other wisdoms, but one of the great wisdoms that I really love is what's called shunyata. The Buddha says that when we stop reacting so much, when we start learning how to simply be present, to take in experience, to uh, not add commentary all the time or to detach from the commentary we add to life, eventually we start to notice the times that our mind is quiet. Unlike that guy who only noticed when he was angry and never noticed when he was happy, Many of us, and I think my, certainly myself included when I came to practice, the only time I was self-aware was when I was thinking. But when my mind was quiet, when there wasn't thinking going on, when there was internal silence, I wasn't aware of the workings of my mind. It was only when my mind was creating traffic, creating crowds of thoughts, busyness, creating content that I noticed my mind. I didn't notice my mind when there was this settled silence. And in one wonderful book by Ajahn Sumedho called Silence, he has an entire book of practices that just teach us to become aware of the space between thoughts rather than the thoughts themselves. To become aware of those times when we're not living in our internal chatter or speech making, when we're simply fully engaged in a task without adding anything. Those times when we're gardening, drawing, playing an instrument, sitting watching the sunset, whatever it is, doing, lying in savasana, whatever it is that allows us to fully open to experience without adding the story or the thought, we begin to actually notice. And the Buddha said he spent the last years of his life dwelling in shunyata, dwelling in the silent, quiet, open, spacious mind. And he said it was something of great beauty. So, those are some of the things you can see if you try any of the practices that were described. I hope that this talk was worthwhile. And if you prefer the more psychological ones, keep coming back because I'll be doing them again and again too. Thank you for coming.